Thank you for worshiping with me just a few more minutes. By the way, if you have a computer, and it's one of those mornings you don't feel like worshiping, play that. It works. I've done it. It really does. Uh, it gets you saying, wow, we have a big uh, turn with Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25. Even if you never went to church, you've probably somewhere heard the cliche or colloquialism, if you will, a good Samaritan. Almost everybody's heard it, but this is where the background comes from. It really is a uh, story that Jesus tells. It's a situation that uh, takes place here in the Gospels, and uh, Luke describes uh, what took place here, starting in verse 25 through verse 37. So if your Bibles are open, if you don't have a Bible, simply raise your hand. we will be glad to put one in your hand, so just raise your hand. We'll be glad to put a Bible. Thank you very much. Um, Luke chapter 10. If you don't know where Luke chapter 10 is, look to the person beside you. Maybe they know where it is. Act like you know what you're doing or something. Just look over there. I'm sure they can help you get there. Luke chapter 10, starting verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came by where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him and took care of him. On the next day, when he had departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever you spend, when I come back again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, being the man who asked the question, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Father, we ask now for your spirit to speak through your word. May you be magnified, glorified, and may we be instructed, convicted, comforted. Lord, whatever it is that each individual needs, that you would speak by your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me read you a poem by a gentleman named Joseph Bailey, and he says this in his poem, I don't want to be synthetic, pretend, phony, an actor playing out his part, hypocrite. I don't want to keep a prayer list, but to pray, nor agonize to find your will, but to obey what I already know, to argue theories of inspiration, 
but to submit to your word. I don't want to explain the difference between eros and phylos and agape. And to sing, I want to sing as if I mean it. I actually want to mean it. I don't want to tell it like it is, but to be it. Like you want it. I don't want to think what an, I don't want to think another needs me, but I need him. Else I'm not complete. I don't want others, I don't want to tell others how to do it, but to do it. To have to always be right, but to admit it when I'm wrong. I don't want to be a census taker, but an obstetrician. Nor an involved person, a professional, but a friend. I don't want to be insensitive, but to hurt where other people hurt. Nor to say, I know how you feel, but to say, God knows. And I'll try if you'll be patient with me. And meanwhile, I'll be quiet. I don't want to scorn the cliches of others, but to mean everything I say, including this. Many people look the part, don't they? Many people, they have all the knowledge, don't they? Perhaps they're very religious. They have credentials. They have accomplishments. They have the time. Oh, yeah, they don't think they have the time, but they have the time. They have the time, and they have the means to help, to care for, to minister to others in sometimes significant need, but they don't. They don't. You can fool men, but you can't fool God, can you? They lack the genuine compassion and surrender to live a life for others. Deep in there. But what they really lack is the gift of saving grace in their own life that then flows back out by the Holy Spirit to other lives. You can't manufacture it. All the exterior stuff, the knowledge, the intellect, the being able to say, I really care about this stuff, and then the Lord looks at the life and says, do you? If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, The Selfless Samaritan. The Selfless Samaritan. Three things that we'll look at from the text this morning. Self-righteous, silenced, and sanctified. Self-righteous, silenced, and sanctified. In verse 25, we see the, the, the man that has this question for Jesus. A certain lawyer stands up and tests him. Clearly a religious man. If you take all the world's population and you just count those who claim to be Protestant or Catholic Christians, Protestant, they claim to be either Protestant or Catholic Christians. Take all of that population. Notice I did not say born-again believers because being a Catholic Christian or Protestant does not make you a born-again believer. Jesus made this clear in John chapter 3 when he met another religious man named Nicodemus who was highly religious but not born again. But follow this. 
So that's Jesus' definition of salvation. I'm not talking about those that are born again. I'm talking about those that claim to be religious. Take that population that claim Christianity. Then you add those who adhere to Islam. Then you add to those, those that are Hindus. Add to that group those that are Buddhist. And add to that group those who practice Judaism. The five most recognized religions on planet Earth. Those are the five most recognized religions. Almost anyone you meet has heard of those five religions, whether they practice them or not. But you take that five groups, put them together, and about that's 77% of the world's population right there. That's 77% of the world's population. This doesn't include many other religions such as Shintoism, shamanism, and other religious or regional religions, folk religions, tribal religions. doesn't even include all those. You're well into the 80, upwards to close to 90%. The fact is, atheist and agnostics aside, the vast majority of people self-identify themselves as religious. Again, atheists and agnostics aside, the vast majority of planet Earth self-identifies themselves as religious, in varying degrees, no doubt, but they identify themselves as religious, embracing faith of some sort as a religious construct. But notice this very religious man's question. Very religious. And by the way, he's a Jewish expert on the law. Not the laws that we might consider, not contract law and you know, real estate law and that kind of. He was an expert in the Torah, the Old Testament law, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but also the Tanakh as a whole, the Old Testament scriptures. He would have been an expert also in the oral Torah, the oral Torah, which was uh, the tradition of the elders passed down verbally. He would have studied the Old Testament scriptures for years. You couldn't stump him on Hebrew. He was an expert in the Hebrew language and what words meant. And based on his understanding of the Old Testament, this was not a universal, I mean, of of the religious sects in Jesus' time, they had varying viewpoints on the afterlife, on what the Old Testament scriptures actually meant, uh, they weren't in complete agreement like we are today in America. That was a joke. <laughs> no, they weren't in complete agreement. But this gentleman, and, and, and many like him, he was convinced, based on his understanding of the Old Testament, he clearly believed in the opportunity of a great afterlife, a place of reward, a place you'd actually want to go to. He believed that was taught in the Old Testament. In fact, it is taught in the Old Testament. Remember, many people have a lot of things right. Jesus wants to have them know the whole truth, not part of it. So he was correct in what he had examined and come to understand, that there really was a heaven that he wanted to go to. When you think about it, his question is at the heart of what everyone on earth wants to know. His question at the heart of what everyone thinks about. They may not tell you they're thinking about it. Matter of fact, they'll engage in small talk 99.9% of the time. But not in their secret thoughts. 
everyone thinks about what will happen to me when I die? That's his question. That's not the way he words it. But the question is, what's going to happen to me when I die? The thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you go to paradise. You know, it's well said. There's no atheist in foxholes. Right? Bullets start to fly. Afterlife seems very possible. Probable. Now where will I be? Where will I be when I die? But secondly, he really does want to know where is this better place and how can I get there? Most of the world's religions express some type of heaven, paradise, or improved state. Not all of them, but most of them declare some sort of afterlife that would be a place that would be a place of enjoyment and peace. Some teach that the non-inheritance, the non-inheritance to their religion will simply cease to exist. Some teach that, that, you know, basically you die, you don't exist anymore. The atheist doesn't believe in heaven, and the agnostic isn't sure one way or the other. But neither believe in hell. You'll hardly ever find, I mean, I'm, maybe there's one out there, but you'll hardly ever meet an atheist or agnostic that believe in hell. Well, the atheist doesn't believe in anything. After, you know, and then the agnostic, I'm not sure if there's a heaven, but I'm pretty sure there's no hell. From time to time, you'll meet someone who will express that they don't care if there is a hell because they're going to go there and party with their friends. You don't hear this as often, but every now and then you will actually, I've actually had people say this. I don't know where they got the idea. They brought, made it up themselves or just heard it from other people. But if there is one, they're okay with it because it's going to be uh, like a really hot nightclub. Hot being the emphasis here. In other words, they have their own made-up belief of hell. It's not scriptural, but they've made it up. Not the hell described by Jesus, not the hell described by the scriptures, both in the Old and New Testaments. What you never hear from anyone, though, you never hear from anybody, regardless of their religious or belief system, whether they believe in hell or whether they believe in heaven, whether they believe in any existence of the afterlife, you'll never hear this. At least I've never heard it. I've yet to hear a person say, when I die, I want to go and suffer somewhere in a hell-like place. I've never heard that. Regardless of what they believe, you'll hear plenty of people believe in a paradise, afterlife, on a comeback as a tiger, whatever. I want to come back really rich. Nobody ever said I want to come back as a mosquito. They believe in incarnation. But all the belief systems, and I've never heard anyone say, when I die, I want to go suffer for all eternity. I've never heard that. No one really wants that. And there's a lot of ways to ask Jesus questions, but Jesus sees the 360 view of your question, doesn't he? Even the parts that you can't even conceptualize, he sees. A Harris poll in 2013 found that 58% of Americans believe in the devil or hell, this is down from 
So now we're down to about 58% of the people believe in the devil or hell. Used to be 62%. Those believing in heaven is now down to 68%. It was 75%. So we actually have a, a nation that is sliding away from beliefs that the Bible has never changed from. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But even among those who believe in hell, even of that 58% that believe in hell in the United States, even of those that believe in hell, they typically don't think they're personally bad enough to go there. So even if they believe in it, they don't count themselves as a candidate to be there. And those that believe in heaven generally believe all roads lead there. Whatever faith you pick. It doesn't matter if they conflict with every single teaching of Jesus. Jesus allows that, apparently. The Jewish lawyer, he doesn't believe all roads lead to heaven. He doesn't. He's monotheistic to begin with. He practices Judaism, which is significant belief in uh, Yahweh as opposed to any other god. He believes the scriptures, even quotes them back to Jesus, and he gets them right, doesn't he? He actually gets them right. He doesn't believe all roads go to heaven, but he wants to know, this is what he wants to know, Lord, like the rich young ruler, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What is the one, I need a short task list, because I'm really good at knocking out tasks. I need a short task list to know, heaven's tracked off, I'll be there. I just need to know, because I think I'm really good, but I'm not sure if I'm good enough. But what he really needs is not some work he can do. What he needs is the saving and transforming work of Christ. Not something he can do. And so, as Jesus hears his question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, knowing that he knows the law, knowing that he knows the Torah, knowing that he knows the Tanakh and the Scripture, says, what does it say? What does it say you should do? Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then what takes place? If you're taking notes, let's look at silenced here. We know his self-righteousness. But the Lord silences his self-righteousness. Because he says, Jesus says, you've answered rightly. Do these and you'll live. Jesus drops a bomb here. Very soft. It's all right. Go ahead and do it. Your whole life, knock that out. It's not a one-time task list. Just the whole rest of your life, knock it out. I love uh, the way, you know, Jesus does things that you and I can't do. This is really not, not every single thing that Jesus does you are to mimic because he's God walking on earth, Emmanuel. So Jesus basically almost, uh, all, you could almost see like a fold of arms, all right, go ahead and do it, see you later. Go ahead, keep, keep the law of perfection, bye, you already know it. But he wanted to adjust himself, says, oh, one more question. Who's my neighbor? 
there's a little guilty conscience going on in the background here. Because as Jesus says, all right, you want to keep the whole law, you go ahead and do it. I'm done. You got it knocked out. You know how to keep the whole law. Go ahead and do it. The guy starts to think, I'm not sure if I've ever kept it like that. I'm not sure if I can keep it like that. Let me see if I can get some identifying character. Who is my neighbor? Does that include people that don't look like me, act like me, talk like me, think like me? Does that include them? Jesus wants the man to come to the place that he sees clearly that he'll never keep this standard. You and I, again, I, when people ask me a, a, a genuine question, even if they have some motive behind it that I don't know, I don't have the ability like Jesus to say, all right, you go ahead and do it and just walk off. But Jesus can. Why? Well, a, he's God. B, he knows exactly how that response is going to lead that person to him. Because when you're God, you do those big things. You and I, we... That's not, a, that's not an approach that necessarily I just simply say to someone, hey, you go ahead and keep the whole law. See you later. But Jesus can say it because that's, that's not what he's intending. For the, he's not intending the conversation would end there. He's using it as a bridge for the man to continue to dialogue and say, but hold on. I'm not sure if I can do that. Who, who is my neighbor? D.L. Moody said, God has nothing to say to the self-righteous. See, God's silence to the self-righteous actually does a work. When God refuses to answer the self-righteous, the self-righteous get squirmy. Because they like an argument. They like to be able to express their resume. But Jesus isn't asking for his resume. You know the law. What does it say? Here it says this. All right, do it. I thought you were going to like ask me all the great deeds I've done. No. I'm not asking you about all your great deeds. I'm telling you to keep the law perfect. This conversation's over. The guy says, whoa, 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 whoa. The tone of Jesus' response is to say nothing to the things that this man thinks he's done, thinks he's accomplished. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Once this man's heart turns, Jesus is going to have living water for him. But the heart has to turn. He has to say, God knows everything about me, and I'm not able to hide anything with fig leaves here. Jesus responds to this man's self-righteousness in some ways that we can apply, though, especially when we're bringing the gospel to people. There are, like I said, things that are unique about Jesus' interaction with people that uh, I don't have time to go through all of those things, but you know, there's so many things Jesus does that are not applicable to us doing because we're not Jesus. Any more than I can say to the woman at John chapter 4, you know, how many spouses she's had. Jesus knew that. No one else could have been able to know that. He's able to do those things. But there are principles we can follow, Christian, that we can do when we're reaching out to people with the gospel. One of those is we can point people to the law. Because the law shows, the law was never 
meant, or God knew it never would be kept to perfection except by one man, Jesus himself. And we can point people to the law. And we can use the Ten Commandments of Jesus. Jesus said, what, what do the Scriptures say? What does the law say? You're the lawyer. You know the Old Testament law. You can ask a person, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, who hasn't? Have you ever lusted? Well, yeah. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Accidentally. Right? I didn't do it on purpose like my neighbor does all the time. They do it on purpose. They think it's funny. Hollywood likes to put it in almost every sitcom. Like it's a great way to accentuate a sentence. Use Jesus' name or God's name. Which God will someday judge. He's gracious now. But we can point people along. We can ask them simply, have you ever broken any of these commandments? It doesn't matter if they believe in the Ten Commandments. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord, not your testimony, not my testimony. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The law of the Lord is perfect. See, it actually pierces the heart. People, even if people don't believe in the Bible, they don't like being lied to, do they? Does anyone like being lied to? So they know in their conscience, God's already written the law of conscience in our heart, read the book of Romans, that lying can't be good and it's wrong. And we all lie. We've all lied. And this man's never kept the law either. He's never loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Good. I have news. No one's ever loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, 100%, there's one that's done that, and that was Jesus. He loved God 100%. Everyone else has fallen short. It doesn't matter if you were at 99%, and really no one's ever been at 99% either. <laughs> Not even close. We're lucky if we're at 1%. Right? No one's kept these things perfect. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, which is all the earth, that every mouth may be stopped. And that all the world may become guilty before God. You cannot receive repentance until you know you're guilty. You have to know you're guilty. You have to know that this is true. You have to know that I've never kept this command. I've never been perfect in this. I've never measured up. See, the use of the law, when you and I express this to someone. Now, again, we're, we're just a sinner saved by grace talking to other sinners which is all the more reason why we must use the Word of God because the law and the Word of God penetrates the heart because it's supernatural. Your good arguments and my good arguments never really work. When I see people get saved, I have preached sometimes, I've seen people get saved, and I'm like, how in the world did that message do anything? Doesn't matter. If it has the Word of God, and then the ones that I think are going to do something, don't. But I know this, the law never returns void. It actually is working like a surgeon's knife, even when I can't see it working. And we have to use it. Jesus knew all this. And first, every word that comes out of Jesus' mouth is the word of God, A. But then he, on top of that, he actually points people to the word of God. So everything he's doing is bringing conviction, 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 conviction to this man. penetrates our heart, 
It's by the Spirit of God it convicts and it challenges us of the things that we're using to hide behind, the things that we apply to our own sin and our own self-deception. Remember how people say they're self-righteous, they're self-described religious, but they're also self-deceived. And Jesus is coming to undeceive everybody. Well, if that's a word or not, but <laughs> add it to the dictionary. We live in a day and age you can add new words. You can even blog about them. You know, you can just say, I came up with a new word. <laughs> if someone says, hey, I'm a good person. Well, the scriptures say there's none good but God. I'm a good person. We point them to the scriptures and we show them the wages of sin is death. Why we need a substitute in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The scripture said there's none who does good, none who understand. All we like his sheep have gone astray. There is not a single person, nobody, not this religious man, and he's saying, Jesus, I've studied a lot. What, uh, what task do I need to go knock out to have that? I've done enough for you to earn God's favor, that I've finally earned it, and I can stop studying and just have earned your favor. But Jesus begins to tell this parable that further silences this man. Jesus always goes in directions no one... You know, this guy couldn't have foreseen that this is how Jesus was going to entertain this dialogue. You might even think, where's he going with this story? But he begins to tell this parable, it further silences man, but it really speaks to all of us. And we'll look at a couple of the angles that it does. It's not just, it's multidimensional how it speaks to all of us. He tells about this priest, he says there's a, a, a certain man, well before let's get, go back to the beginning of it first, a certain man goes down from Jericho. Now we're in Israel, when you're up in uh, Jerusalem, you're sitting about 2,500 feet above sea level. When you go down to Jericho, Jericho is down towards the Dead Sea. It's not all the way at the Dead Sea, but you're going way down because the Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth. And you go down to Jericho, and then you cut your way south. Um, it would be southeast towards uh, the Sea of Galilee. I'm sorry, the, the Dead Sea. Galilee's north. Um, but it's a steep decline. And uh, when, we, when we went to Israel, I'll never forget because we actually came up the highway from Jericho into Jerusalem, and it was approaching the golden hour. If you know photography, the golden hour is when that sun is in the sky where it hits and makes everything gold. Well, that's magnified in Jerusalem because the limestone makes all the buildings look like gold. That's why it's called the golden city, and it just shines. But we're coming. It's a steep, steep incline, but it's also a steep decline if you're going down to Jericho, and it's very rocky on that backside of Jerusalem all the way down, and lots of narrow passages in those days where thieves could hide behind big rocks. And thieves aren't real nice. They don't really care if they beat this man down, took all of his clothing, whatever was left, took his money, and actually left him half dead. This wasn't like just a little bit of a beating. This was a serious... The guy would have died. Jesus saying, here's... And, these, and Jesus is telling us things that actually happened in their day. This is a very normal scenario. So you would have to travel in groups and make sure you had protection and 
and be aware of these things. So this man, he says, hey, this guy's going down. He falls among thieves. They strip him of everything. They wound him. They leave him half dead. Now along comes by chance. I love Jesus by chance. By chance. He's like thinking, see if this reminds you of someone. We'll get to that. By chance, a certain priest comes down the road. He sees him. Of course he goes and helps him, right? I mean, he's a priest. Wouldn't a priest help? No. He looks over there and, oh, wow, that could be dangerous. Other side. Did anyone see me? I'm a priest. Anyone see that I, no one saw me. And, and, by the way, as a priest, I have a very busy schedule. I have important things to do. I have to go pray with people. People need me to go pray with them. People need me to do things. People need me to teach them. I don't have time to help a man who's dying. And a Levite, he comes by. He sees the same situation, has much the same response. A priest and a Levite, both were religious leaders of their day, just like the man Jesus is talking to. He's a religious lawyer and leader. These guys are religious leaders within the uh, Levite tribe. Um, So in the Levite tribe, you actually have priests that actually do the most important aspects of temple work, the incense. Of course, you have the high priest that goes in to the Holy of Holies one day uh, out of the year. And you've got the, uh, but then you also have the Levite tribe as a whole, which all work to support the priesthood in general. So you have the, the priesthood is actually a subset or a superset inside of the Levite tribe. So both of them were part of the Levites, even today. Uh, if you go to an Orthodox synagogue anywhere in the world, go to a Jewish Orthodox synagogue, doesn't matter if you're in Toronto, Argentina, or Jerusalem, or right here in the United States, you go to an Orthodox synagogue, the public reading of the Torah is first done by the Kohen or the Kohanim, which would be the priesthood. The priesthood must read the Torah first. Then it's followed by a Levite, a general Levite, not a priest, but just a general Levite. The third through seventh readings are allowable for any Jewish man. The first and second readings have to be priesthood first, Levite second, and then any Jewish man. But as Jesus states in Luke 12, 48, whom much is given, much is required. God's given you spiritual responsibility. You should be the most caring, right? The most caring. You've been entrusted with the lives of people. You would be the one that would not go around the way, but the one that would actually be there to minister. There's been centuries also. There's some other facets of this too. There's been centuries of strife between Jews and Samaritans at this time. But by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, there's already been centuries of Samaritans who are half Jewish, and the minds of the Jewish, pure Jewish people, these were half-breeds. And they rejected the Samaritans, and the Samaritans despised the Jews because they were despised. So now they both can't stand each other. You know that Jesus went right through Samaria and reached out to both Jew and Samaritan. Jesus doesn't look at anyone as half anything. He looks at them as wholly needing him. Only we look at people and look down our nose and say, well, they're not equal to me. Who do we think we are? There's no one that's different than us. Under a microscope, we're 99.99 the same. 
But Jesus knew that he, this man, he, he would have known that this man doesn't even like Samaritans. That's why he's saying, and who's my neighbor? Better not say Samaritans. <laughs> Please don't say Samaritans. Say Philistines, say anything. Do not say Samaritans. I'm not going to say Samaritans, but let me tell you a story. And oh, by the way, there's a Samaritan in this story. What a surprise, right? He could have seen it coming once the story. But then there's a third man. He's not a Levite. He's not a religious leader. He's not in charge of people's spiritual well-being. He is a lowly Samaritan. And he stops because, of course, Samaritans have nothing to do with their time. Their time isn't important. He has all the time in the world, so he stops. Right? By the way, sometimes we look at that. Like, well, so-and-so, I would be able to do that, but I don't have the time like they do. Try telling that to God. You can tell yourself that to your blue in the face. It doesn't work when you talk to the Lord. He's like, really? Let, let's go over your calendar together. God puts his arm around you. Let's you and me go over your calendar. I've been looking at your time, too. And I've found minutes, lots of them. You're given the same 24 hours that everyone else is given. But anyway, this Samaritan, who didn't have spiritual responsibility, wasn't really spiritual, at least to the Jewish uh, uh, religious elite. They would have thought, these guys aren't even going to heaven. They have no chance to get it right. He stops everything. He doesn't just stop everything. He ministers. He gives two days wages, two denarii, two days wages. Imagine giving two days of your salary this week because you saw someone in great need. Two days wages. Then, of course, he uses the, that's not even counting, when he uses oil and wine and different things that are medicinal to actually bind the wounds. Then there's the actual time and labor of putting him on the donkey, taking him down to Jericho, time away from work in addition to the two denarii. And oh, by the way, says, when I come back, I'll settle up anything else. Jesus saying, this is probably hurting you, isn't it? Because you simply asked, what do I need to do? Is there a check I'm supposed to write once and for all to the United Way, a Red Cross? And everything will be okay. See, black tie affairs, $1,000 dinner plates, don't really impress God. That kind of charity that's taking place at the Hamptons and Palm Beach and West Hollywood and whatever else is going on. And, well, we, we've helped the poor around the world as we get back into our Rolls Royce and drive away. Jesus is impressed by those things. Men like Hudson Taylor, women like Amy Carmichael, men like George Mueller, who really rolled up their sleeves and actually got down with the lowest and the lowest and the poor of poor and ministered in disease-ridden, infested places because they love people. I had only been saved for about three years. I got saved in uh, 1995. I'd only been saved for a couple, about three years. I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina. We had moved up there. I, that's where I got my first real job. I actually had health insurance that, I, that was actually part of the package and all that. It was my first real job. Very low. It wasn't a high-paying job, but I had a Monday off, and it was actually it was something like um, President's Day. I know it was like in the February, so it was something in that time, and I had a, I had a day off, and you ever really look forward to a day off? You're like, yes, 
And I had my list of all the stuff I was going to get to do on my day off. And I had lunch with a guy who was a mentor of mine. And when I left that lunch, um, I was driving uh, down one of the interstates in Charlotte. And I passed this kid. He's about, I, I knew he was in his mid, uh, between the teen years and maybe 21. So and it turns out he was about 19. But I passed this kid, and you know, I'm passing him by going about 60 uh, on the interstate, and he's really literally walking beside the interstate, which is really not a safe place to be walking anyway because cars are flying by, tractor, trailer, truck, and he's got like a backpack or something slung over his shoulder, and it was about 30 degrees outside. And I whizzed by him, and the Lord, I, I had this, then I actually saw him. So I'm like, huh, poor guy, keep riding. And the Lord's like, what do you mean poor guy? I mean, I wasn't having a verbal conversation, but I just, the, things like the Good Samaritan started coming up in my mind. And then I started thinking about, I wonder if anyone will pick him up. Anyone will give him a ride. Well, what if he's a mass murdering hitchhiker? What if he is Charles Manson's protege or something like that? And I'm thinking all these different things. And uh, I couldn't get it out of my mind. I finally, Lord, I said, all right, Lord, if you want me to pick him up, I'll turn around on the interstate. I'll have to, it's not easy to turn around on the interstate. You've got to get off the interstate, back on the interstate, get back on another exit to get back on. It, this, was a, this was going to be, because I'd already ridden for about 10 minutes debating whether I should do anything. I've only been saved three years. I'm not a Kohanim. I'm not a priest. I wasn't a pastor then. I was a guy with a day off with, with a laundry list of things that I was going to have fun doing the rest of the day off. But I turned around. I said, all right, Lord, I'll go back. And, uh, and so I doubled back and took about 10, 15 minutes to get back there. And he was still walking on the interstate. So I pull over, and then uh, I invite him to get in the car. He smelled horrible. Clothes were all matted. Literally, I'm not kidding, he had snot running down because it's 30 degrees and he's walking on an interstate, which creates more breeze and wind. Uh, just, I know he hadn't showered, I don't know how long, 19 years old. And I, I don't remember his name. So I um, started talking to him and uh, he said, you know, I asked him what happened. He said, well, I had to leave my family. There's a lot of alcohol abuse. There's all kinds of abuse in the house. Uh, he really wasn't well-educated. Um, and, you know, his hair was all matted, and um, it, it just was, I, I couldn't describe. It, it was like, it wasn't something that I had grown up with, even though my life was far from perfect growing up, but it was like really, uh, really, really sad situation. And I just started talking to him and asked him things, questions about his life, and, and then I got to start talking to him about the Lord. And I said, would you be interested in knowing God's plan for your life? And ended up sharing the gospel. And I took him to... Uh, I said, well, I, where am I at near here? I found a, a large Baptist church, which I knew of nearby. I said, maybe I can go get him a Bible. And I took him in there, and they found an assistant pastor. And we led him to Christ and gave him a Bible. And then, uh, then I said, uh, you know, he had this huge smile on his face after he, and I'm really shortening the story, but he ends up coming to Christ. And then I said, you know, would you like to go have something to eat? And he picked Chinese buffet. I don't like Chinese buffets. <laughs> but of course he picked a Chinese buffet. I said, uh, let's go get, I love Chinese buffet. Yeah. So we go to have Chinese buffet. I find one or two things on there that I, you know, generally uh, loaded with oil and stuff. But anyway, um, so we go do that. And, 
and he eats like 10 plates. I'm not kidding. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it's like just one after another. So then I was like, well, I can't leave. I can't just put him back on the road. So I call another organization. They said, well, there's a halfway house that will take the homeless. And as I drive him to downtown Charlotte, and I find this place, and I, uh, I get him inside the facility, and I bring him in, and, and you know, I see him go down the hall and uh, start to go through the reception process. And, uh, you know, I just prayed, Lord God, use. and I called back that place the next day, and I asked about him how he's doing. They're like, who? I described everything about him. They said, we have never had a person like that come in this building. They, they said, there's no such person. To this day, I don't know if he's an angel that God had sent just to, t- I'd only been saved three years, but to test to say, what will you do? They had no record of him whatsoever. Never been here. And they, they kept detailed records of every single homeless person that came in because they got government aid and stuff for every single, if someone came in, they must be documented and their description and everything else, no record whatsoever. No one had seen him or ever heard of him. To this day, I don't know. Maybe he walked back out. I don't know. But I know that the Lord was teaching me early on that if you're going to serve the Lord, it's not about you. That you have, to, you have to become like Christ. You have to think in a way that, Lord, how would you think about this? How would you look at this situation? This man that Jesus is talking to, he would see the sacrifice in the Samaritan. It wouldn't miss him. It wouldn't escape him, would it? He would see that the Samaritan was sacrificial. He would see that the Samaritan was willing to lay down his own time, money, resources. He knew that men like himself, they had a religious status. But they didn't have the heart of God. Right? They had the, they had the title. They had the clergy. They had the white collar. But they didn't have the heart of God. Because God's heart, Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy. I mentioned this story here, the story in the parable. It applies to everyone. It applies to everybody in a number of ways. If in this world you see that some are the beaten down, see the man beaten down? That represents some of this world's population. Some people in this world are constantly the downtrodden, beaten down. I don't even understand how in, on planet Earth there's some people from cradle to grave that are the downtrodden, beaten, much of the 1040 window, and others like the Rockefellers or something. But the reality is that some, and I'm not just talking about economically, I'm talking about many different ways. There's many in this world that are the beaten down. There's some that are doing the beating down, right? They're also in this story. They're kind of, they're way in the backdrop, but someone did the beating. True? The thieves. Now, they may have been beaten down early in their life, too, but the reality is some are beaten down. Some are doing the beating down. Some are smugly at a distance, I'm not being beaten down. I'm not doing any beating down. I'm not doing anything. (laughs) Right? 
There's that. As long as it doesn't affect them. Some have a bit of interest in helping, but they actually don't like the other people. So they can't help them because they don't like them. Like the Samaritan. I'd love to help a Samaritan. We don't like Samaritans. We can't help Samaritans. It'll even not even help their children if they're enemies. It happens all over this world. But all the different groups in the world, those being beaten down, those doing the beating down, those not interested, those lightly interested, those smugly at a distance, they all need the transforming power of Christ, don't they? All of them. The worst to those that are the most abused, every point in between. I saw this um, just recently. There's this new Infinity commercial. It's the holiday season is here, right? There's this new Infinity commercial. I told my wife, she goes, you've got to see this commercial. This is classic Madison Avenue thinking. There's this man. If you, you'll see the commercial now. If you'll recognize it. There's this man, and he sees Santa out there doing this, and, uh, and, and he offers to help Santa carry the stuff back up to his New York apartment. It actually is a pretty nice New York apartment or something like that. It wasn't like the hood or anything. It was a pretty nice, pretty nice New York apartment that he's walking up into. He goes up in there, and then he takes Santa's thing, and he sews his, I guess there was a rip or something on Santa's jacket. He's, this is the current Infinity commercial. You'll see it. He sews it for him, and Santa gives a little smile to that. And the man wakes up on Christmas morning. He's got an Infinity in the front yard. <laughs> that is totally the world's thinking. Let me get this straight. I do a little good deed, and I get a brand new infinity. I mean, really. There was a million things he could have done in that city that were far more pressing needs. But the infinity dealer, that's not their customer. Right? The infinity dealer has to appeal to someone who believes they deserve more for the good deeds they've done. That whole self-righteousness. Again, I'm not down on I'm just saying this is, I was in corporate America for 17 years. This is this thinking. The United Way drive. You put in an auction, you win so-and-so's guitar. It's valued at $2,500. you have done something great. God will be amazed at you. But God's not looking for good deeds. He's not. He's not looking for good work, but the life of the good shepherd in our lives. The last thing we'll look at in just a couple of points on sanctified. Jesus goes through this whole thing, tells him, you know, who do you think? Who do you think was the neighbor? The man gets it right. He says, he who showed mercy. Jesus wanted him to see, lawyer, you need mercy, and you'll never really give mercy until you receive mercy what he's saying. You can learn from the selfless Samaritan that he had been transformed and you would be transformed. Jesus' parable illustrates what a transformed life looks like. The change in a person that received the grace of God. And he contrasts this change to someone committing heinous crimes and he also contrasts to those that are highly religious. See, it doesn't really matter if you're the ones highly religious or the ones committing the crimes. Jesus, in either case, the only one, the only one that's going to inherit life, inherit eternal life, back to his original question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is the one who's been sanctified by the grace of God. 
who receives mercy, and then when the change is on the inside, I've said a million times, before I got saved, the last place I wanted to hang out was church. I wouldn't have taken my day off to, if I was riding down the road and I saw that guy, I would say, he probably did something to deserve being out here. Right? We tell ourselves things that make us feel better. He probably, he's probably a drug addict. Right? When really Lord's saying, no, he probably needs me and I'm sending you. Right? That's what the Lord wants to do with a sanctified life. He wants to take someone who was like this lawyer, a little bit smug, a little bit self-righteous, and he becomes like Nicodemus who takes the body of Jesus off the cross and helps wrap it. Even at great risk to him, he would end up doing that. The Lord wants us all to become like this selfless Samaritan, a recipient of grace and bringing salvation. Once we receive that grace, we bring that grace to other people. We bring it to them because we've experienced it. Whether we were the be- doing the beating down, whether we are the beaten down, or whether we were the religiously self-pious. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God will still have us do good works, but the works were prepared for those that were made into the likeness of Jesus. They don't get us to heaven. They're proof we're going there. That makes sense? They don't get us there. They're the outflow of the fact that we've been changed. I'll close with this quote from Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray says this, Fellow Christians, do let us study the Bible in the portrait of the humble man. And let us ask our brethren and ask the world whether they recognize us the likeness of the original. Isn't that powerful? Ask the world, say, do you see Jesus in me? Do you see that I really care? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the greatest example For you left heaven to come and bind the wounds of those of us, Lord, who were lost and without hope. And we thank you, Jesus, that you revealed to us that we could never keep the law. That whether we were self-righteous, whether that we were full of anger, full of strife, where we came to recognize that we needed to be bandaged and wound healed by your precious blood shed on Calvary. And before we close in worship, again, God is in the business of redeeming and saving. He loves the Jewish lawyer. He loves the Samaritan. He loves the beaten down man. He loves the Levite. He loves the priest. There's no one in the story that Jesus isn't willing to save. None. Not willing that any should perish. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If there's anyone here that says, you know what? I want to receive the grace and mercy of God. I want to be forgiven. Just stand right where you're at. Just stand right where We'll say a prayer with you. You can be received into the family of God, even if you came here with no intention whatsoever 
to give your heart and life to Jesus. You didn't know what you were going to hear. But if you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior, stand right where you're at. That young man I picked up on the side of the road, that was not my plan that day. But see, God sees everybody. He does. He sees every single person. All walking the streets of Richmond now, God sees every single one of them. If there's anyone at all, just stand right where you're at and say, Lord, I want to give my heart and life. Don't worry about what other people think. Be like those Marines singing. Anyone at all, say, I want to give my life to Jesus. For all of us, and I will say too, if there's anyone here and you want to speak to myself or the elders after the service, I'm going to ask the elders to come and sit down front. If you want prayer for any reason, uh, they'll be up here to, uh, to pray with you. If you want to talk more about uh, what we've studied this morning, we're here for that too. But for all of us as believers, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, the Lord wants us to become like that selfless Samaritan. Amen? Not manufacture that life, but spend time with Jesus that that life flows from us. Amen? I don't want to go around and conjure up good works. I want to walk in the Holy Spirit and good works will flow. And the heart of God will be in our hearts. And the mind of Christ will be in our minds. That's the Lord's desire. Why don't you stand as we close and worship? I'm just going to close and worship. If you want to worship like a U.S. Marine, you can do that. We'll just sing a couple stanzas and then I'll close us in prayer. Show me.